Welcome to the First Ever Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Baum. Today, I'm talking to Nathan Ellis, who is a Kansas City-based musician uh, known mostly for playing in the Casket Lottery and Coalesce, two bands that are uh, extremely important to me. And I think that if uh, you're a fan of either of these bands, this is this is definitely the podcast for you, as it's uh, it's it's very just fanfare. Um, this is me uh, definitely just getting to talk to Nathan about a lot of things that uh, I've always really loved about his career and the bands that he's played in. Um, my band Touche Amore specifically recorded our second record, Parting the Sea Between Brightness and Me, out in Eudora, Kansas, with producer Ed Rose, specifically because he did all the Casca Lottery records, but most specifically the album Survival is for Cowards, which is one of the best sounding records within the entire genre of, I guess if you want to call it post-hardcore or emo or, or whatever whatever genre name you want to use. Um, so yeah, uh, things that Nathan has done has been a, a huge influence in my life. And um, if you're a fan of anything he does, this is, uh, this is going to be very enjoyable for you. And um, if you are unfamiliar this is a great way for you to kind of learn what he's about and the music that he's been a part of. Um, and I can't recommend uh, these records enough. Um, if you're just discovering Casket Lottery, uh, I would start with Survivalist for Cowards. And if uh, you're new to Coalesce, uh, check out the record Functioning on Impatience because it will uh, completely just knock you on your ass. Um, so thank you for being here. This is the first ever podcast. And uh, this is my conversation with Nathan Ellis. All right, Nathan. Uh, thank you seriously so much for doing this. I'm uh, I'm stoked to talk to you. This is this is uh, one of those conversations that I, I knew I was going to be having, and I'm glad that uh, we we've arrived. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, so you're are you from um, Kansas City, Missouri? Like born and raised? Yeah. Well, I mean, pretty much. So I grew up in um, a small town about two hours east of here called Midway. Uh, until I was about 10 years old. And then I moved to Kansas City after that. So like all my formative years have been in Kansas City. Yeah. Okay, got it. And at what point were you, did you find yourself being interested in music? Was that something that came when you were young? Or did uh, did that come like a little later in life with like, you know, picking up an instrument or even just, you know, finding the kind of music that you were interested in? Yeah, you know, I'm not real sure. Um why I started being interested in playing music, but that started around 14 or 15. Um, I've got, I've got one uncle who, who builds steel guitars. So, Whoa. um, not that I've ever played a steel guitar. I don't know if you've ever like messed with that. I mean, it's a whole, a whole deal. Like you got to use all your f- feet and knees and, and shit. And it's bonkers. Like I, I watch him do it. I'm like, that's, you know, three appendages too many for me, but, um, (laughs) it's, uh, you know, I think it is something that runs in the family. His brother was also like, a like a mid Missouri honky tonk star in the seventies. So, um, yeah, I I think it runs in the family, but at at around 14 is when I picked up the guitar. And what, uh, when you picked it up, like, what were you trying to, I guess, like emulate or anything like that? Like was, uh, did you have like favorite bands pretty, pretty young or what, what kind of music were you interested in first? So I have an older sister. She's about five years older than me. Um, and as far as influences at that point, they were probably the, probably the cure, even 
at that point. Um, that's just for my sister, the cure Morrissey, the Smith stuff like that. Um, and still to this day, the cure is my favorite band, like bar none. Um, and, and before that, like sure. my parents were, I don't want to say that they were like always listening to music around the house, but when they did, it was like Merle Haggard and George Jones and Willie Nelson records. And I loved that stuff too. You know, I was never like totally turned off by country music or anything like that. There's great songs, you know, in fact, I, I have all those records at my house now. Like I, <laughs> I totally raided their stash a while back. So it's funny how that happens once, once you get, especially like, I mean, yeah, if, it sounds like when you were young, you weren't off put by it, but it's interesting how, even if you weren't necessarily interested in it as a young kid, how they get sort of engraved in your head so that when you're older and you can find appreciation for, for that type of stuff, country and oldies and, and whatnot, it's it's crazy how much you just know all the songs already. Like they're implanted in your head. Sure. It's nostalgia for sure. Um, and, and of course, when I was 14, I wasn't learning Merle Haggard songs or anything like that. I, I did not care about that at all. You know, I was um, learning uh, Cure songs and then, of course, like Nirvana songs and stuff like that. Um, and And really, I was just... Um, following my sister's um, style of music, which was just the new wave stuff until probably about 15, 16 is when I started getting into punk music from hanging out with skater friends, you know. So that was a completely different thing, you know. Like before that, I had only had an acoustic guitar. So um, what I was playing was very strummy and, um, you know, pretty chill. And then... um, and then I immediately needed an electric guitar. You know, I was listening to Minor Threat and The Misfits and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I didn't even want to tune anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just wanted to, like, play loud, you know. And um, and then that's when I uh, formed my first band, too. Sure. So what was what was that first band that you did? What was that called? And what kind of what were you doing in it? Because you play you've played bass and guitar in bands. So were you playing guitar? Yeah, I played guitar. Um, <laughs> uh, first band was called Matilda. And uh, Matilda, yeah, and um, it was uh, it was like heavier, um, like any fifteen year old knows how to be heavy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like um, <laughs> drop like, D, yeah, drop D, like helmet type stuff. But also something else happened that same year. Um, I, I saw a band from Lawrence, Kansas called Kill Creek. Mm. And I saw that band the night before I started my first band. So that was, that band was like a major influence too. And they were at that point, um, if you haven't listened to St. Valentine's Garage, um, they're kind of like this big, I mean, like big drums, 90s alternative um, rock band, right? So... Um, if you get into like Proving Winter Cruel, which is the record after that, they're a little bit more chill, Midwest, emo type thing. Um, but early on, they were a big rock band, you know, like real big guitars and stuff. So that was an influence. So uh, yeah, big, dumb rock band in my basement, you know, you know, yelling for a couple hours a day after school and uh, my parents being cool with it. We had a little uh, drum riser, you know, like nice. <laughs> a little two by four, uh, you know, l- fake stage. And uh, yeah, that was that was Matilda. That was 
That was was it named? Was it supposed to be named after the the play that turned into the movie? You know, I have no idea where that name came from. I I don't know. Funny enough, uh, the the actress who plays Matilda in the Disney movie went to my high school. So so there's a a, a fun, very well, Burbank yeah. thing. Um, <clears throat> it's funny. I was I was just looking up Kill Creek because I had that Colors of Home record, and I also had Proving Winter Cruel. Um, I feel like mm-hmm. didn't. Didn't the New Amsterdam's cover Kill Creek on one of those records? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think so. Um, Kill Creek was a huge influence on on most bands around here. That band ruled. Did they Did they go on to play in any other bands after Kill Creek? No, Mm-mm. no. Um, and that was that was kind of like everybody's. Maybe not everybody, but um, that was definitely my introduction to Ed Rose too. Like he recorded. St. Valentine's Garage and Proving Winter Cruel and Colors of Home. Um, I think a lot of Colors of Home was home recordings as well. Um, but Ed Rose um, worked on on those records, and that was like my first introduction to Ed Rose because in St. Valentine's Garage, in the little CD booklet, he wrote the liner notes, and it's all about the production of the record. And um, yeah, I just I loved reading that and and like learning how they did everything, you know. Wow. Okay. I mean, I just have to be a geek and sort of enjoy the fact that I th- I find it re- very cool that you found Ed Rose because of this band, and then the reason my band Touche went to Ed Rose is because of your band. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a- awesome. That rules. And and I think that that's how it works in this scene, right? Like everybody. Um, you know, and I know liner notes are a thing of the past, you know, like that's one of those things that I feel like streaming has all but killed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, you know, when I was getting into the scene and like trying to figure things out, reading zines and reading liner notes, it's like that was the that was the roadmap to like figure out other bands. Like, remember how like all the CDs had a thank you list of like all the bands that <laughs> they played with or whatever. Like I'm sure they played like one show in Iowa city with this band. It's like, Oh cool. I'm going to check that band out now. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it became the, it was definitely the roadmap. It's how I discovered so many bands. If it wasn't the thank you list, it was the label. That's funny. I was talking to someone else about this. It, you, you know, it's at a time where you only have so much money to really just buy one record every couple of weeks or every week or wh- whatever sure. you're doing. So if you bought a record on a whim because it was on, say, Victory Records and it was bad, you still kind of dead it. Oh, yeah. You got that baby Gopal record. <laughs> it was either yeah. baby Gopal or donuts. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, man. Was- I, th- I thought this was going to be like donuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's Literally. like, I remember. Try again next week. Yeah, but also I remember putting in the effort to try to like it because that's like, well, I spent sure. money on this. I gotta, yeah, there's gotta be something here, <laughs> right? Yeah, you still had that CD in your car for like three weeks. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what it was. Um, so what was uh, so after Matilda was the next band? What was the next band like when um, uh, because I think do I understand correctly that you played in Coalesce before doing the Casca Lottery or what or what's the timeline there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think after Matilda, I had, you know, a couple of other bands that I played guitar in. Nothing nothing that ever released anything, you know. Um, but I, I was playing in this band 
that I, I think we changed our name like four times. And we did play a show with Coalesce uh, as a house show here in Kansas City. And I knew all those guys anyways. Um, and I, I played a show with them in this band playing guitar. And then at that point, like after that, I started hopping in the van with them and just going out and like, you know, selling shirts for them and, and just just tagging along, really, you know, just going out to um, whatever festivals they were going to because they knew that I cared and wanted to go see some bands or whatever, you know. So, I, and I was I was doing that at like 16, 17 years old. I remember um, I left town. Well, that was later. That was after I joined the band. So, I'll get back to that one. But at like, you know, 17 years old, I was traveling the country with Coalesce. And um, when Stacy decided to de- depart Coalesce, uh, Jess called me the next day. You know, he's like, "Hey, do you want to play bass for Coalesce?" And I was like, "Yeah, totally." Never played a bass before in my life. <laughs> um, I was enrolled in community college uh, at that point. I had just graduated high school. I got my tuition money back and bought bass equipment, and and just started playing. And in fact, like that next week, uh, we were in what was then called Red House, I think, or it might have just turned into Black Lodge, the same studio um, with Ed Rose recording like the Get Up Kids split. I think the Boy Sets Fire split. Uh, 002 reissue thing where we re-recorded everything and like a couple other songs. Like So I was recording like 10 songs with Coalesce. Those were all done in the same session? Yeah, I, I if I remember correctly. It was like a bunch of mishmash stuff like that. Yeah. Um and that was done like 10 days after joining the band probably. Holy shit. Um and then I just started traveling like crazy with um with the with the band and um you know at 17 18 years old doing that stuff. So was that your first touring experience doing doing yeah. uh, like hopping in the van with Coalesce or did uh some of those earlier bands do like little weekender tours or anything yeah no that was it with coalesce just jumping in and tagging along because it's funny like uh, once you know people especially that have toured a lot um it's like you you realize especially on those first couple tours like if you have the mentality to hack it you know to like especially it what i'm imagining was a lot of you know sleeping on floor hardwood floors and oh yeah sometimes shows falling through and all all sorts of that sort of stuff like do you have any fond memories of that time or anything that sticks out as like exciting you about living that kind of life well i mean i think it it helped that i started doing that with them at 16 or 17 you know where it was like uh, you know it was fucking awesome. You know, it's, it's like exciting. just You're going out. out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And playing like the punk club wherever across the country and um, meeting other kids like you and, you know, different communities all over the country. And, you know, back then, like, uh, you know, taking down addresses and phone numbers and like writing letters and postcards to like your friends in Minneapolis or Florida or wherever. Right. And, um, so I loved it immediately. Like I loved touring right away and it sucked. I mean, it was terrible. Those shows were terrible. The <laughs> venues were busted, you know, half the time the show got canceled, you know, yep. we like didn't eat anything. I slept on wheel wells, you know, in the back of the van. I mean, it was terrible, right? It's a extremely trying experience. Um, but not at 16 or 17 when it's like, Oh, this is, this is just awesome. I just love it. 
yeah had you had you left your state at all uh at that age yeah i mean a a little bit but definitely not like on my own sure you know not you know going out and exploring uh, the world with my friends you know like so um yeah that's definitely that definitely appealed to me oh understandably um so when does when does the casket lottery start yeah so i i i think i joined coalesce in like late 97 or early 98 casket lottery probably started it had to be 99 because the first record came out in 99 so either late 98 or early 99 something like that it's funny i looked at because you know i was like clicking around and stuff and i've followed you know both bands since since uh, i first learned about them and i just looking at the dates probably similar to you going in and doing all those tracks with with ed for for coalesce i saw that there's like it could be wrong, you know, it could just be like misinformation, but it looked like all in one year, Casca Lottery in 99 put out Choose Bronze, Dot Dot Dash, The Reflector Split, and The Waxwing Split. Does that seem real? Because that's insane. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, oh it is God. insane. And, and you know what's nuts about it is by the time Choose Bronze came out and we started traveling on it, we had Moving Mountains written. We were like playing those songs on oh the Choose God. Bronze tour. So like as soon as we got home, it was like, can, can we finally record this record? You know, and um, a lot of that is just because when I started recording with Coalesce and Ed Rose at Red House, Black Lodge, whatever it was at that point, I loved it. I fell in love with the process and how how fun it was to create something out of nothing. You know, essentially like taking these bedroom riffs and and putting together songs with your friends in the basement, right? And then going to the studio and like laying it down and Ed being like, what if we took the acoustic guitar and ran it through the Leslie speaker cabinet. And I'm like, I don't know what those words mean, but let's do it. You know, it's like, <laughs> fuck, this is going to rule. And like the crazy sounds that come out. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is fucking fun. You know? So Ed making recording fun is why all that happened so fast. You know, it was just, I couldn't wait to get back in the studio and do uh, whatever. If, if somebody was going to give us money to go to the studio for a song, for a split or a comp or the EP where like, shit, let's write four songs really quick, you know, whatever it was, you know, I just wanted back in there. Um, and then also you reminded me yeah. in the, in what you were just saying there, when you were recording at Black Lodge, do you remember that I was going to come out and do some stuff? Of course I do. Okay. Of All right. Cool. So, I, do. I, I, so was, uh, I had like, I had the parts flu. written for that record, dude. I had like <sighs> ideas. I wanted to come out and put an organ track on one of your songs. And like, I had no idea if you were actually going to let me do it, right? Like I had this, like I had the melody written. I had it all planned. And I got so sick that week. I got, <laughs> I, I, dude, I was hallucinating. Uh, my family left me in my house. I had like a fever of 103. And like, oh my God, I got a new Mogwai record and I hallucinated to it for like four days straight. It was, <laughs> it was bonkers, man. I got, it was H1N1. So, um, oh, right. Sickest I've ever been in my life. And, um, yeah, sorry I missed that. Like, oh, it, you know, but regardless, great record. 
Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, I remember it was uh, my idea was to have you on on the the song, The Great Repetition, because I was like, oh, my God, there's this break that could just have whatever. And then I remember you telling me, like, well, I have all these other ideas. I'm like, let's fucking do it. Let's go. Um, but then you got sick. And then uh, and then so you sick. ended up singing on uh, on Into It Over It's record. And I was like, huh, must be nice. Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. So when Casca Lottery officially started, so. Um, actually first do you remember much about like going in with ed that first time and what your expectations were because your first time being in with coalesce and you're playing bass this instrument that you're kind of still getting your head wrapped around were you anxious or did you feel kind of like more of an excitement i mean i'm sure i was um i think at that point i was just trying to remember all the fucked up shit that I had to do for coalesce songs, you know? Um, I don't remember being incredibly nervous about working with Ed or the studio or anything like that. It was just, um, how do I not fuck this up? Like, how do I just, um, play well enough that everybody's like, yeah, this was a good choice, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I feel like I was much more nervous to work with Ed on Cascalary stuff. And that's probably because, like, with Coalesce, it was, like, Jess and Sean. Yeah, and James and I were there, too. But, like, J Jess wrote all those riffs, all those parts, and it was, it real like, everything really kind of hinged on him nailing shit, right? So that was the important thing. Casca Lottery was like, all right, these are my ideas. Like, and, you know, and, of course, Stacy and Junior, too. But, like, this was, like you know, a different setup, right? Walking in and being like, check this out, Ed. And, you know, is this garbage or what? So, um, and the thing you know about Ed is like, he'll definitely tell you when, when shit's not up to snuff or you need to like redo everything or that part sucks or you can do better. You know, like Ed doesn't pull punches, right? So um, I was far more nervous going in with Casca Lottery stuff for sure. Uh, I don't remember ever being nervous going in with Coalesce stuff just because I was I was just like playing bass in the corner, you know? Sure. Uh, you know, I've always been curious because I, I, being such a, a Casca Lottery fan as long as I have, I don't know that I could point to any other bands really that that sound anything like what you guys do with like the interesting time signatures and the choices and the melodies and all that sort of stuff. So for you... What were what were you looking towards or pulling from when it came to to songwriting for Casca Lottery? Mm, I mean, I, I can definitely like talk about the initial influences for the band, um, and I think one of the reasons it doesn't really line up with them is because I didn't really know how to do it. You know what I mean? Like I just. I was just playing how I played, and I don't really know what I'm doing, especially at that point, you know, and what happens just happens. Um, you know, but our initial influences were um, Boys Life and Giants Chair, a couple local bands, Kill Creek, um, and then even like um, Shudder to Think and Fugazi, right? Like we wanted to be something a little bit more like that. Um, so that was like the initial idea, right? And then whatever came out, it's just you know, is kind of how it happened. Junior, the drummer, um, who's, his name is Nathan Richardson. We just always called him Junior. Ed gave him that name because there was two Nathans in the studio, so you got to do something. So <laughs> right. we called him Junior. 
because he was 15 when we found him and started playing with him, right? So, um, Damn. great drummer, like even at 15, like just really had all the chops in the world. But like he was from the world of Rush and Pearl Jam and, um, uh, you know, like drummer bands, like that's like what he liked. So like whatever he did underneath what Stacy and I were doing is, is part of the magic too. Um, and, and the big reason, um, that it doesn't sound like anybody else is because we weren't good enough to emulate our favorite bands. Quite honestly, we just, you know, mashed some parts together and what happened happened. It's funny. I'd never thought about, I mean, I know you were shudder to think fans because uh, I know you do the cover, which is a great cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I never thought about Fugazi in that way where now that you say that I could hear the Fugazi influence with more of like a, what for lack of a better term, like the Kansas city sort of like indie emo sort of sound, but still like you have such a uh, distinct style of, of putting of just like vocal patterns and things like that, that that really make have always made Cascalader stand on their own. And, and I think have always made that band seem very timeless. This isn't me just blowing smoke. I'm, I, I genuinely, <laughs> genuinely feel these things. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about. Well, thank you, first of all. And I think the other thing that was happening at that time that, um, you know, had some sort of impact on the way we did things is like, you know, I would go out with Coalesce and play shows with, it was Coalesce, the Get Up Kids, Jimmy World, Jay June, and His Hero is Gone or something like that. You know, it's like everybody right, just yeah. fucking played a show. You know, we just all happened to be going through Baltimore at the same time. So this is, uh, this is the show tonight. Um, and, you know, shows were just like that back then. It was, you know, I remember the first time I saw the Get Up Kids, it was the Get Up Kids, Giants Chair, and Karate. And, uh, you know, uh, they were in a band, the Get Ups were in a band called Secret Dakota Ring before that. Um, Uh And I loved that band. And it was basically, it was just like Kansas City's Jawbreaker, right? So um, I remember seeing the Get Up Kids and thinking, uh, holy shit, like this this fucking band is great. Like, this is like secret decorder ring, you know, uh, 10 steps better. And then, uh, and then like three months later, you know, playing, it's probably more than that, but playing a uh, coalesce show uh, in Wilkes bar and like the, everybody in the crowd is singing along with the get up kids. And it's like, Holy shit, that didn't take long at all. You know? Um, oh my God. But I, you know, that's just how shows were back then. It was like every fucking band played with every band. So, stupid me and Stacy probably just thought let's just make every band sound like our band you know so we could play with every band right yeah we just no, crammed all sense. influences possible into one band a buddy of mine uh Alex Estrada who's done a lot of our a lot of touche recordings and he'll always do pre-production demos for us and stuff he and I got into a debate once because I I once I still stand by I was like Cascalotter to me is if Coalesce was an indie band. Like there's a lot of like the weird choices and time signatures and things like that. And he thought I was crazy for saying that. Oh, that definitely has to be true because, you know, so much of the way I learned to write parts and songs came from putting songs together with Jess, who was, you know, just 
uh, bonkers, right? Like he wanted to do uh, the crazy idea for the sake of the crazy idea. So, you know, I picked that up from him. And then, you know, at the start of all the Casket Lottery songs, sure, I tried to do some of that too. Ha! Hear that, Alex Estrada? Ha! So there. <laughs> so there. Um, so uh, here's something I've always, I don't know if you and I ever talked about, but so uh, most of the records came out on Second Nature. Yeah. How did you meet up with with Status, which was a record label slash magazine out of Simi Valley, Thousand Oaks sort of area, California. Like, how did that come to connect? Um, so we met Seth from Status from early Coalesce West Coast tours, just staying at his house, staying at his parents' house. And like, there were so many shows um, around that area, a Thousand Oaks area, that we'd end up like staying like three or four days in a row with his family, right? And like, you know, his mom would make us food and we'd sit by the pool with his dad. And um, yeah, so like, I just, I met Seth through Coalesce tours. And then um, we were playing a Casket Lottery Coalesce show on Halloween had to be 98 and Seth flew out from California and, and, and came and hung out. And, um, after that, after the casket lottery set, you know, he just said, Hey, what are you doing with this? Let's, let's, um, put something out. And it's funny. Um, that same show <laughs> was the show where Dan from Second Nature came up and said, hey, what are you doing? Let's put something out. So it kind of oh, happened no, okay. all in the same night where it was like, all right, so uh, let's do an EP on status and let's do the record on uh, Second Nature. And how did you, because I, I mean, that informs that year as I was talking about, because yeah, Choose Bronze came out on on uh, on Second Nature, mm -hmm. dot, dot, on uh, status. And then how did you meet up with Waxwing? Because Waxwing, for listeners who don't know, it's Rocky Votolato and Cody Votolato of uh, of Blood Brothers and, and all sorts of stuff. Like, how did how did you meet up with Waxwing to do that split? When we were in Seattle on a coalesce tour, ninety seven or ninety eight, one of those years. I, I guess that had to be ninety eight too. Um, we were staying at Jake Snyder's house from. At that point, uh, that might have been before Sharks Keep Moving, um, minus the bear, Jake, route. right? Yeah, State Route. Yeah, that was right around that time. And so I remember like hanging with him and he was playing me all sorts of stuff that he had recorded, like local bands. Um, one of the bands was uh, a totally kick-ass, underrated band that nobody talks about anymore. And it's a fucking shame called Joe Don Baker. And did I send you that record? Wait, that that you sent me that yes, record. That's yeah, what I thought. Awesome. Joe Don yeah. Baker. Okay. Nobody fucking talks about that band. And and they recorded like, I don't know, something like 10 songs ever. And they fucking rule. Okay. So that's just my little rant yeah. on that. But he also played us Rocky Votolato demos and Waxwing demos at that point. And Dan from Second Nature was with us and he like immediately fell in love. And and we all did because you know that band's just so good so um so i think that dan just started talking to him about the waxwing record um and we had a moving mountains was was about to come out so we decided to do that split together um just kind of as a 
you know, a second nature split since we had two new records coming out on second nature. And then shortly after that, we ended up touring the Midwest with Waxwing for, I don't know, six or seven shows. And I don't know, we've been tight with those guys ever since. Um, uh, Cascadery and Rocky probably did three tours together. That's, that's who I saw you with. I remember seeing, I remember seeing Cascadery and it had to have been Cascadery and Rocky Votolato. Where was that? In Thousand Oaks. In Thousand Oaks. Was that at it was Kung, or was that at Kung Fu Corner? It was not at Kung Fu Corner. It was might have been in Ventura, actually. Shit, it's all such a blur yeah. at this point because that would have been two thousand. Did you ever go to shows at Kung Fu something. Corner? Oh yeah, my old band played there for for those listening. Kung Fu Corner was a karate dojo. Yeah, that was like <laughs> one of my favorite places we ever played. Like how awesome was it to play yeah. like on a padded floor? You know, like. <laughs> It was yeah, surreal. it's like you had to take your shoes yeah. off. You had to take your shoes off to go into the show because you stood on the mat. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, it was uh, the only time I could ever think about going to like punk shows where everyone had to be in their socks. Yeah, it was you know, great. It created a sign it's of a, a, an it, ultimate it, equalizer, right? Like 100%, 100%. Um, so then uh, what came first? The, uh, the, the Casca Lottery work with the small brown bike split, which is like, you know, a pretty acclaimed lo- beloved uh split because not only is it it's like very collaborative but um was abel baker fox which was the the band that featured both members of that was that born out of the split or was that idea um sort of before that you even did that record so the small brown bike casket lottery collaboration record was definitely first um and we just played so many shows with Small Round Bike. They were definitely, I feel like that band, more than any other band, was our brother band, right? Like every band has one, right? Like where you just tour together a lot. You can't wait to like see them at whatever festival. Um, so Small Round Bike was that band for us. Um, the collaboration thing happened. And then it had to be a couple of years after they kind of stopped doing stuff that um, and Casket Lottery wasn't really doing stuff at the time that um, I don't even remember the initial conversation, but it was it was definitely um, an idea that we ran with as soon as we thought of it. So, yeah, that's that's myself and um, Mike Reed and Ben Reed from Small Brown Bike and Jeff Genster-Bloom from Small Brown Bike. And we wrote that record like through the Internet, just like file sharing. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, so what we did is just, you know, email ideas to each other. Um, put the songs together kind of on our own. And then we had one practice in Chicago where we like demoed everything one weekend. And then like two weeks later, we recorded that record in four days with Ed Rose at Black Lodge. And it was one of those ideas that like, I remember talking to Ed about and he's like, what what are we doing? We're doing... 11 songs in four days. Is that, is that right? And I was like, yeah, you know, we're going to try it, you know, and um, we'll, you know, knock out their parts first, obviously. And, you know, I can, you know, add days if I need to, since I'm the local guy. And um, I think we were done like half a day early. Wow. We just kind of like got in and just, you know, uh, played through the songs and they were awesome. And that's one of the, the most enjoyable recording experiences I've ever had for sure, because it was so easy, you know, it was like effortless and the result was cool too. Like we just finished and we're all super proud of it. 
was uh was ed does ed feel the same way because i'm just reflecting back on having to do our record in five days and him him having to mix our entire record in one day he was yeah no i i think um i think if you asked him he would say that that's one of his favorite projects too okay um because it was it it was just easy like it just happened like everything clicked there wasn't like any you know like sometimes you get into the studio and you've got like one song or one idea um that's just a bear and you like can barely get through it and it's a fucking mess and it railroads the whole session right or a whole day or whatever um and and this was nothing like that you know it was just um you know, go in and hit record and everybody blasted through their parts. And, you know, I, I think the most conversation uh, we had during that recording process was like, if I was re- I was doing a vocal uh, line somewhere and I'd say, you know what, I you know, maybe Mike should do this part. Like this is more his vocal range and we just swap out real quick and, and do it that way. And other than that, it was kind of just like how we put it together and, and, um, so easy so yeah i think ed liked it because it was easy and fun and um it's always a lot more enjoyable when you just go in and and can be productive and and be proud of the result here's something that's funny i I, i'd be curious to hear your take on this um what you just described is 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 something that i think every band deals with which is when you're in the studio and you kind of hit a you hit a wall where like maybe not everyone can agree on where a song should go or like there's just a lack of an idea um, or you can't get something you can't maybe convince others of your idea or, or whatever it is. Like, do you have any advice on what you found is the best way to sort of tackle that situation? You know, I think just moving on, don't getting stuck on any specific part. Don't try and make something uh, bigger than it is, you know, like just, I think my biggest challenge with all of that ever is if I'm like, if I blow out my voice, like that's one of those things where it's like, man, there's just no coming back from that today. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's a, that's a day changer. You know, you've got to move on the fly if something like that happens. Right. Um, But otherwise, like if you're just like stuck on an idea or a part, you can just like park it and come back, especially if you're working like on a full length, right? You can just be like, all right, well, we need a break from this song. Let's come back. Um, but I feel like <laughs> I'm kind of a control freak, right? So I over prepare and I over demo, um, especially like, oh, by the way, I've got a new record coming out, especially on this new record yeah. that um, we just finished. Like, I demoed the shit out of everything, right? So um, by the time it was, uh, you know, studio time, we were like over-prepared. Like I knew what everything was going to be. So I didn't have that sort of hang-up. So definitely, you know, I guess that's my advice. Just over-prepare. And when you blow your voice out, move on. Change change the plan for the day. Yeah, no, that's a a great way to look at it. Absolutely. so when the, it's funny the the band reformed and you did the record Real Fear and God it's been a while now right that was probably two thousand yeah that was twenty twelve that that record came out the band reforms and you you played some shows and the that record came out and now it's been another God I guess good amount of years before 
now you have this new record coming out and who did you did you record this new i forget did you record this new one with ed we recorded here in kansas city with a guy named josh barber at a studio called yeah ed is yeah ed's 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 retired um but yeah i I did convince him to mix it oh wow yeah i I like i got him out of the house and he uh he actually came out on day one and two i think helped us uh set up and get drum sounds rolling and um and then you know he came out like two or three more other times just for like uh one-on-one days with me to add like keyboard parts and extra ideas like just rolling in and like doing fun stuff Mm -hmm. um and then and then yeah he took all the files home and mixed it um which is great to have his touch on it because um I was really worried about that, you know, honestly, with um, doing a casket lottery record without Ed Rose. Um, I was going to ask what that was like. Well, so working with Josh was great. Um, I think like the setup that we had for this record was actually um, really perfect, you know, because Josh um, uh, fresh, you know, he's like, you know, hungry still likes to like come up with... um, you know, likes to be involved in the conversation, like does a great job um, staying positive and, and like being involved in the conversations. Whereas Ed, um, you know, Ed can be a little short, right? Like I'm sure you've experienced mm-hmm. where like Ed's like, a, he's like a no nonsense dude, right? So um, sometimes um, if Ed's not there for it, you know, you're going to like have a, a kind of a long day, right? Um and ultimately, like, he retired for a reason. Like, he's he's not there for it anymore. Like, he doesn't really want to be doing it. So, like, I called in the favors, you know, to, like, have him come out. And I think, like, all the times that he came out was because he wanted to, you know? So, that made all the difference in the world. You know, it was fun times, you know? And it was, like, all the I best. Yeah, all the best moments of recording with Ed. Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I round out the show with uh with this question and and uh, i'd be curious what your answer is do you remember the first time where you felt like you had accomplished this goal of of creating i guess you know like the, the first time where you felt like oh my god i'm actually doing the thing that i've been working so hard towards I, there's so many little uh, little moments along the way right like where you get you know, the first seven inch you're on or um play uh, you know a first big show or whatever but I, I think one of the like big ones that stands out for me um because it like it was different than just some dumb little thing that my band did that um <laughs> only you know our, our 40 friends like um was <laughs> when <laughs> when we were uh coalesce tour in europe which i guess that was because we only went once. That was after Ox came. When we went to Europe, we only went once. I think it was right after Ox came out. So that's got to be like 08, something like that. Oh, 09 maybe is when we toured Europe. And we were invited to record a session at the BBC. And that to me was one of those moments where it was like, this is this is surreal. This is one of those moments that like I'm walking through the halls of the BBC and uh, recording in this amazing studio. And, um, yeah, that's a moment. And like, we all left that day, left the studio that day and went and played some, um, 
really weird hardcore festival in Europe, right? And um, but but leaving the BBC, we were like, holy shit! Can you believe we just did that? Like that was that was fucking cool, man. So I think that moment's a highlight. Of course. Do you still have those recordings? I don't know that I ever heard that. <sighs> so. <laughs> we left that day with one CD and none of us are claiming up to like who has it. So <laughs> it kind of sucks because, <laughs> and Sean swears it's me. So, and I've looked through my CD boxes a few times and I still haven't found it, um, which sucks Man. because, um, uh, you know, it's like four ox songs and um, hopefully it shows up someday. If someone has any interest in putting that out, I, I would, uh, I, I would also, I would also bug you to be like, yo, I, I don't, I'll put that shit out. Uh, I love when bands put out BBC sessions. Um, yeah, I, and I know that, like, that's why Sean's been looking for it. Like, that, that's like definitely okay, a goal. Yeah, he knows of his. what's up. Um, yeah. So hopefully it shows up someday. Oh, I, I would, I would be very excited to hear that. I wonder if it, is it on the internet anywhere? I don't know. I guess maybe we could reach out to them. Hey, BBC. Yo, yeah, I mean, they should be keeping <laughs> I need that coalesce uh, session. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap this up, I, uh, Nathan and I, for listeners, are both gigantic Joel and Ethan Cohen film nerds. So let's do this real quick, just because, okay. just because it's fun for me and I know it's fun for you. Okay. What's your current standing top three? Because uh, it could change weekly. Yeah. I think number one has to be no country mm -hmm. man this is tough dude like I, it's tough yeah there's no, the mean, thing is there's no wrong answer unless you said unless you said intolerable intolerable cruelty is number one that's the only wrong answer that's the only so um is it weird to say barton fink too no certainly um, not so you know if you would ask me like three weeks ago i probably would have put raising arizona in the top three Something interesting happened, though. I just watched Raising Arizona with my youngest daughter for the first time. And and at the end of it, she was like, that sucked. And I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> movie's classic. That was like one of my first favorite movies when I was like 12 yeah. or 13 years old. And oh, no. uh, apparently, apparently, it did not age well. Um, uh, I guess Lebowski's got to go in three. Yeah, it's, it's that's what's tough. Is Safe they choice, have right? Yeah, exactly. Well, they have movies that you just can't not have in the top. Like if you did top five, you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, Lebowski and No Country have to be in there. They have yeah. to be in there. But, no Country is uh, the perfect movie. It's so yes, it, fucking good. I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I got to go to a screening for the for the Writers Guild uh, to see that movie. And there was a and a after with the Coen brothers and actors from the movie. Is this and like right when it came out? It was the it was the night of the it was the, the night it came out. Yeah, it was the or the Thursday before, I believe. That's awesome. And uh, a, a guy I was in a band with uh, it was in the Writers Guild or is in the Writers Guild. So he invited me and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I get to go see this movie. And, and that Coen one, brothers too. You got to go yeah. to that one and not Lady Killers. <laughs> and the fact that the Coen brothers were going to be in the room, I was like freaking out, you know, I was like so excited. And I remember, you know, them, them saying, yeah. And then after the movie, there's a Q and a with uh, Joel and Ethan Coen plus Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin and Kelly McDonald. And I was like, I don't give a shit about those three. I just want to be around the Coen brothers. Right. That's how I felt at the moment right. before the movie. As soon as the credits hit, I was like, 
I need to see these actors. So, you know, like I just all of a sudden, you know, especially Javier Bardem, who I wasn't familiar with yet. So, uh, so they came out and I was just like freaking out. I was like, this is the craziest, coolest thing. And then halfway through the Q and a, they brought out another stool and then Tommy Lee Jones came in and sat down. I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, I think if I was to do a top three today, it would be, uh, no country Lebowski and maybe inside Lewin Davis. Cause that movie just gets better with every viewing. I don't know yeah. if you feel that way. Yeah, man, we're we're in a dark space, huh? Like, if those mm-hmm. are your top three, fuck. Yep, twenty twenty is rough. Absolutely, yo, Nathan, this was awesome. I can do this with you all day. I appreciate you you doing this with me. Um, I'm excited for the new uh for that new record to come out. Um, are there pre orders still going for it, or do they all sell out at this point? Yes, there are still pre orders as of right now. Um, uh, link in bio. You can find us on Instagram. I'm sure. Um, the record's awesome. I'm, I'm excited to get it on vinyl. It's, Thanks, it's uh, something I'm very much looking forward to. Um, love you, buddy. This was fun. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks, dude. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you can spare a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple, it helps the show gain more visibility and that can make all the difference. Thank you. And I'll see you again next week. Yes.